All right, we're in John chapter 4. So open up your Bibles. I'm really liking John. I hope you guys are liking John. It's really my first time teaching through it. Love it. Is that what you said? So, last time uh, we looked at this wonderful and quite amazing conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman of bad reputation. And if you recall, he asked her for a drink of water and she started a conversation with him. And it ended with him telling her he was the Messiah. There's more to the story, but the uh, conversation was really lengthy and I wanted to really fill out her and Jesus relationship in a full way in terms of their conversation there. So I didn't camp too long on Jesus' words. So I'm going to back up this morning and, and do that. His words, of course, deserve careful attention, right? So um, in this case, Jesus makes some very highly significant theological claims along with a, a challenge to us to get our lives oriented to the truths that he does share. So it's all right there in verses 23 and 24 basically. If you think about it, Jesus told this sinful woman really great things that at least it's not recorded that he mentioned to Nicodemus in chapter 3, the great theologian and teacher of Israel. Nicodemus needed to be born again and Jesus really went there. I mean that was the main thing. He needed a new heart and that was Jesus' focus. This woman brought up worship. So Jesus is going to use that as a way to talk to her. And, and it's great for us because he's talking about worship as it applies in the church age and, and for those of us that follow Christ now. So she wanted to know where the right place to worship was. Where do you go? Is it Mount Gerizim where we Samaritans worship God or is it Jerusalem where you Jews worship God? That was her question. And Jesus' answer it's astounding, it's um, surprising, it's perfect, and it needed uh, to be said, and it's needed, we need to know it, what he said to her. Uh, it's totally relevant for today. And we just kind of skimmed it last time, so I want to focus on how that conversation came to this point in, in um, these great truths. So I want to go back to that, these essential, it's an essential topic, worship. What do we need to know about worship? What does Jesus say about worship? So let me read the text here and I I want to focus again. I'll start at verse 19 and then we'll kind of work up to it. So the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So Jesus is telling her right there that there's going to be a sea change in the way God is worshipped. Well, basically he says from now on, right? Because he says it's starting now and it's coming, this new thing. And she wanted to know which temple was the right one to worship God. And Jesus is telling her temples aren't going to matter anymore. 
which is an incredible statement because that's all that's mattered for hundreds and hundreds of years. Isn't it interesting that no temple exists today, right, for the worship of the God of Israel? There's no temple that there to do that. And there hasn't been one for 2,000 years. That is not an accident of history. Um, you know, when Solomon's temple was destroyed by Babylon, a much less impressive temple was built by the captives that came back from captivity, from the Babylonian captivity, and they built a, a little temple. In fact, the old folks that saw the new temple were like weeping because it didn't look anything like the old temple they remembered. But um, later, later on, Herod the Great uh, started this massive renovation that took half a century or more, and within a few years after it was completely finished, the Romans completely destroyed it, which is really amazing, thinking of all the work that went into it. And there hasn't been a temple since where the God of Israel can be worshipped according to Old Testament practices. Now, of course, when Jesus said these words, it was still standing when he's speaking to this woman. So that temple was still there, Herod's temple. But it was destroyed by Rome in AD 70. So that was not an accident of history that that temple is gone. It's God's perfect plan to diminish the importance of temples. And really every Jew that's lived for these 2,000 years should think why would God let that be destroyed? What happened that he allowed that to happen? Well if they really think about it what happened was Jesus came. I mean that was the biggest event that happened that's had global and uh, the influence of the coming of Christ just on the world is so spectacular and that that happened at right around the time of Jesus and that he actually predicted that it would be destroyed. Those are pretty significant things to weigh when one is looking for the truth. But the issue isn't just that the temple in Jerusalem went away but with the coming of the Messiah God's whole plan of redemption for mankind is entering a new phase and that's what Jesus is telling her. And it's a phase not tied to land, the holy land. It's not tied to a building, the temple in Jerusalem. Once Jesus paid the price for man's redemption, for man's sin, the good news of salvation was to go throughout the whole world. And the importance of Israel as a beacon of light was surpassed by a global ministry with the truth of Christ's salvation going to all the earth. Now the Bible tells us there will be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem one day. The desire to rebuild it has been in the hearts of the Jewish people all these years. It will be rebuilt right before the end. And when you see that, uh, hold your hats, you know, because things are coming, things are happening. The winds of change will blow again with a, with, a, with a power that's rather unimaginable as the planet is about to go completely insane. We're already seeing that part. <laughs> and the Lord returns in glory. But for the last 2,000 years, what has God been doing? Well, what he's been doing was, isn't tied to any temple anywhere. Well, aren't we sitting in a church? Well, actually we're sitting in former classrooms of Vasquez High School. That's <laughs> what we're sitting in. But even on this piece of Acton land, even if there was a grand structure here with flying buttresses and stained glass windows and epic proportions and all that stuff, that is not the church, right? That is where the church would meet. This is where the church meets, a church meets. We call it the church for short when we talk about these buildings because that's the local place 
where God's people come together, where the church meets. It's just slang or short, using short words to call a building the church. Unfortunately, people think that's actually what it's all about. That's what church is. It's not. And so whether it's a cathedral or meets in a classroom or in these modular buildings or whatever or out in the woods somewhere, the church is the people, right? It's not the building in any way, shape, or form. So the church is all the redeemed people that belong to Jesus and the building is where local assemblies of those people come to worship together. So the church is always the people. So Jesus is telling her about a time which had already started, he says, and was soon to take over where temples will not be needed anymore because God's word would come to all people everywhere. So religion is giving way to relationship and relationships going to have to be key because there's no formality or rigid program to meet in some kind of a building somewhere. Did you notice last week that the Samaritan woman never mentioned God? She didn't talk about God at all. Even her question about where we should worship, she doesn't mention God in her question. She doesn't say, she doesn't ask this, where does God want us to worship Jesus? She doesn't ask him that question. She says, our Samaritan fathers worship here and you Jews say you should worship there in Jerusalem. That was her question. And that's the problem of religion right there. She's already focused on the wrong things. And that's what keeps people away from knowing God, being focused on religion instead of drawing them to the Lord. So religion is man-made and it can take true things and just build on top of those things or change those things to fit human ideas or human wisdom. So even if it's founded on what God has revealed, you can mess it up. You can turn what God has given mankind to know him into some sort of idolatrous thing. You can make idols out of anything. You know that, right? By isolating one part and ignoring the rest, you make an idol. And that happens all the time. It's happened in every age, down through things. Whatever God says, idols can be made of the truth. But the true path is actually pretty simple. But it involves what? A radical internal transformation in us, a complete reorientation of our lives. And we can't do that. God does that in us. Like most people, this woman, though she's kind of vaguely religious, she does not have a relationship with the living God. She doesn't love him. She doesn't think about serving him or seek his will for her life. She actually lives as she pleases, as we know. You know, Jesus brought that out. She's just been living her own life. And she has some religious beliefs. I'm sure they comfort her as she looks to those things for some kind of hope or something like that. Maybe, maybe the God can bring her good fortune, that sort of idea. But she lives with herself at the center of her life. And you know what? Human beings were not made that way. We were not live to have ourselves at the center of our lives. So, Jesus tells her that religion is not what the Father seeks. Verse 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's the heart of the Christian faith. There's nothing in the New Testament about elaborate ceremonies or rituals or festivals 
or mighty church building structure things at all. There's nothing like that. Just true worship in the body, the church, the people of God, among the people of God. And before we talk about the heart of this particular passage, worshiping in spirit and truth, let me just mention this too. Why does Jesus call God Father? He's talking to this Samaritan woman and he calls God Father. That was not a common thing for people to call God back then. I mean you could say God is the Father of the world or the Father of mankind, those kind of things. People would say things like that but it was not an Old Testament thing to do to call God Father. Read the Psalms, read all that. See how often it's called that God is referred to as the Father. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said to pray our Father, right? That's a, re- that's a pretty radical change actually. Why does he do that? Of course as God's son it's natural for him to call God his father but Jesus also teaches us to call God father. Why? Because it's a family word. It's a relationship word. It's an intimate word. It's a relational word. God is Lord. God is king. God is judge. That's all true but he doesn't tell us to call him that. He's the father of all who believe. And that tells us that Jesus didn't just die to make us servants of God or slaves of God, but children of God. As the whole New Testament constantly reaffirms that. Remember John chapter 1 verse 11? It says he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God. When you're born again, born of God, you become God's child. So the whole idea of the new birth is bound up with the idea of becoming God's child as well. Remember what John wrote in his letter. How long, can you remember back to 1 John chapter 3 verse 1? It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That we should be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's not religion. That, that's knowing God. Being in a father-child relationship with God. Not fearing his wrath but looking forward to seeing him face to face. That's what John's talking about there. That's the foundation of our life that. Now back in the text here there's two things I want to talk about. One is the phrase spirit and truth verse 23 and verse 24 and then the simple phrase describing God in verse 24 which is God is spirit. I see people fanning themselves. Would it be nice to have the air on in here? Yes it would. These are tropical rains we're having. (laughs) That's okay. I'm feeling the same thing. So two things. Spirit and truth. Verse 23 and verse 24. And that phrase in verse 24. God is spirit. I'm going to start with God is spirit. Because that's in theology. That's the foundation. It's called. You know when when you study theology and stuff like that. There's a thing called theology proper. There's all these fancy names for the different areas of theology. Like soteriology is about salvation. And eschatology is about the end. But when you're just talking about who God is. They call it theology proper. Because theology just means the study of God. So what is God like is, is that 
area of theology. It's usually the first thing. Sometimes the Bible is the first thing. But these words of our Lord, God is spirit, is a core concept that shapes the Christian doctrine of God. And we can only really skim the surface of it this morning, but because um, it's a monumental idea, a very deep doctrine, but we're going to skim it the best we can. The God of the Bible is not the God of Mormons, for example. The Mormon God, they believe he has a physical body. They believe that our God has a daddy God. He is a God over him who also has a physical body. And they believe that God has wives who have physical bodies. And God procreates spirit children with his wives. He's doing that all the time and all of us are descendants of God birthing children through his celestial wives. That's not the God that's in the Bible. The God in the Bible is one of a kind. He's the only God there is. He doesn't have a father or a mother or anything like that. He's an infinite spirit. He's a spirit. That's what Jesus said. God is spirit. He has a spiritual nature, a spiritual substance if you will. He is real but he's not material. He is spirit. God is before and above and outside of the material universe. He made the material, material universe but he is not material himself. He's not one with the universe either. You know like sort of the pantheistic idea. He's, it's like this chair is God and the trees are God and the, <laughs> you know, the moon is God. No, no he's not. He made those things but that's not him. He's separate from that. He's above that. He's transcendent over all of those things. He is spirit. Spirits can't be measured but it's very real and it's very clearly seen spirit in its effects. You just have to look at us human beings. We are different from the rest of creation. Why? Why are we so different from animals and other creatures running around on the earth? Because we are a combination of material, the flesh, the body, and spirit. We have a spirit that was made by God. That is so, we have a body so we can inhabit this material universe that God made and interact with it. That's why we have a body. He made us spirit body beings. So we live in the material world. That's why we have a body. That's why I can interact with it. This is where we live. So we, but we have spirits, but we have spirits that are embodied. Now both the spirit and the body in humans are finite, limited, and had a beginning. There was a time when we were not, right? Angels are spirits, they're pure spirits, but they're limited as well. They're finite, they had a beginning and they are in certain spaces and not in other certain spaces. They, they have to move around. If you ever read the Bible, angels have to travel to places. They have to go here and go there. They depend on God for their very existence and they're capable of being destroyed just like we are capable of being destroyed. So they are limited by their created nature even though they are pure spirits. So they are spirits but angels are servants of God. God himself is a boundless spirit, right? There's no end to him. He has no limits on him whatsoever. He is uncreated. He's eternal. He's unlimited in space. He's unlimited in time. He's unlimited in power. Thomas Watson, the old writer many centuries ago said something. I, I just love to sit there and kind of, I just love the way it's said. 
if you're into math just think about this geometry or something God's center is everywhere his circumference is nowhere I love it that's just a way to say that God is everywhere there's no limits on him anywhere and he doesn't have a center like oh God is there and he sort of radiates that no everywhere is his center you know it's just an amazing it's an amazing thought his center is everywhere his circumference is nowhere he's infinite Jeremiah 23 24 do I not fill the heavens and the earth declares the Lord he's bigger than the universe that of course is why God that's why he forbids us to make images of him once you make an image of God you're kind of you're how can you capture a being whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere how are you going to draw that or make a shape out of it or something what's that going to look like yeah you can't right so every time you try you're denying who he is you're you're giving a false representation of him if you make him a man with a beard reaching out to create Adam in a painting it's a beautiful painting but that's really an idolatrous view of God he's not an old gray haired man up in heaven he's an infinite spirit very different so any image diminishes who he really is and that's why it's forbidden to make images of him now there's other things we can learn from these words God is spirit about God's nature and about our nature also because we're made in God's image that's why we have spirits that's why our spirit we are spirit body creatures because the spirit side of us which is unique unique among all the creatures of the earth that's how we're made in God's image none of the animals were made in the image of God they're wonderful amazing creatures and we can have wonderful interesting interactions with them but they don't have spirits they have a soul life but not spirit so the other aspect of this God and the spirit thing is that God is a person he's not a force he's not a power he's not the expression of everything he's a person and when he made us in his image we're persons too so God thinks God communicates God makes choices he even speaks to other people about himself he identifies himself to human beings he calls himself the I am he relates things about himself to us he's a person he has relationships with his creatures that are made in his image Abraham would be a great example of that Uh, um, you know Abraham was not this guru who was like sitting on a toadstool somewhere and you know connecting mystically to the cosmic reality that's not he was just like a shepherd and had all these flocks and stuff like that and what does the Bible call him the friend of God he wasn't in tune with God he was the friend of God he was made in the image of God He was a sinner like us God came to him God favored him God made promises to him promises that are being fulfilled and have been fulfilled and will yet be fulfilled God has a relationship a personal relationship with his creatures it's an amazing thing God is a person yet always different and forever different from us in that he has no limits whatsoever no limits he is infinite a self-existent person uncreated and we are limited and completely dependent persons you can't draw a breath without him but he can create a universe without you we literally need him and God's personhood is seen in a lot of different ways as you study the scriptures he is self-aware 
That too shows something about us being made in his image. We are self-aware, animals are not. Unlike animals, we can think about ourselves, we can think about our motives, we can think about our actions, we can weigh them, not just in terms of their usefulness, but in terms of their morality, whether they serve God or not. We can reflect on our lives, we can reflect on our purpose for existence. I don't think too many ants think about why they exist. We just annihilated a lot of them recently without guilt. (laughs) But truly animals, even the higher animals don't, they don't think about why they exist. They don't think about the purpose of their existence. They simply act on their, the nature that they've been given by God. We can make real choices just like God makes real choices because we are made in his image. He sets a standard of behavior and we can reflect on that standard and measure ourselves by that standard. And many men don't care about his standard but they have their own standard so they make up their own standard because they're inherently moral beings because they're made in God's image so they even if they don't like God and they rebel against him they're still made in his image so they still have a moral standard and they create their own they invent their own. So the image is in our having this moral sense which we can't get rid of men rebel by inventing their own moral standards so that's the rebellion of humanity but the idea of morality that we all have is comes from being made in God's image. So I think with that foundation we can look at Jesus words in verse 23 and talk about true worshipers. Who are the true worshipers? What do they do? They worship the Father in spirit and truth. So let's so that by, by saying there's true worshipers it means there are false worshipers. So what are the true worshipers like? They worship the Father God is a father in spirit and truth. And remember Jesus spoke these words to a woman who had a question about temples. And Jesus told her the time for temples is over. The time for temples has come to an end. Temples, why? Temples are designed for sacrifice. Temples announce that God can only be approached through blood. She did not know that coursing through the veins of the man she was talking to was blood that he would pour out for her salvation on the cross. She didn't know that. But that's what was, that was what the reality was. He was going to be the final and ultimate sacrifice that actually achieved salvation. That's why there's no need for temples. He's the perfect sacrifice. All of the centuries of sacrifice really just pointed to that full and final sacrifice. His shed blood. And the mission after the resurrection of Christ is to go into all the world and proclaim how his death saves us and how the resurrection proves that in him is eternal life. It also proclaims that his kingdom is coming. So the message wasn't go into all the world and build temples. That wasn't it. Never says a word about that. Go into all the world and teach them all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So worship then becomes a matter of spirit after the sacrifice of Christ has made all of that null and void because the temple purpose has been fulfilled in him. So worship is a matter of the spirit. And spirit is that part of us that animals do not share. Animals don't think about morality. They don't contemplate the meeting of life. They have no philosophers. 
There are no priests. Now we know in Planet of the Apes there's some philosopher, <laughs> philosopher orangutans, but that's just fiction. <laughs> there really aren't any orangutan philosophers. I've seen some orangutans. In fact, one slung a bunch of stuff at my son one time. They, but that was not a philosophical point. <laughs> he was just trying to amuse himself. You know, some years ago there was a gorilla named Coco, and these uh, uh, people taught Coco how to use sign language to a level of about a three-year-old child. But there's one thing they couldn't get Coco to do. He couldn't ask questions. They could not teach him gram grammar for one thing. He could do words and even put words together, but not in a grammatical sense. But he could not, he did not ask questions. He could not ask questions. They didn't give, he had no capacity. Coco, here's the word for who and where. No, he, do, he, he just exists as a gorilla. <laughs> but he doesn't say, why have you put me in this cage? Why, why am I here? He, does, he, he can't do that. What is the meaning of life? Who are you people? <laughs> he doesn't do anything like that. Because a gorilla doesn't have a spirit. He's got soul life. God creates creatures with souls. A, a kind of animal. Soul just means life basically. So they have that but they don't have a spirit. They're not made in the image of God. Coco couldn't worship God. You couldn't even tell Coco how to worship God because Coco wouldn't even get it. There's no spirit there. It's unique to human beings. We're made in God's image for a purpose. Originally that purpose was to oversee creation and to honor God through our work in creation, right? The purpose was to serve God. That's the purpose of angels too, to serve God. But when the first humans sinned and walked away from God, they forsook the very reason for their existence, the meaning of their life. They said no to it. So now human beings are constantly groping for meaning. They're looking for meaning. But they have this sinful bent too. So when you tell them the real meaning, their natural tendency is to reject it. That's why God, by the Holy Spirit, comes and starts working on their heart, to open their heart to that. Jesus' favorite word for human beings was lost and that's what human beings are. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. That's the wonderful news. And once we are found by him and saved by him and through that salvation we are adopted into God's family because of what he did, his death on the cross for us, we worship him. And we worship him with hearts of gratitude. I don't worship Jesus for what he gives me. In fact, it doesn't even occur to me to do that. I don't say, oh, give me this, Lord, give me that. I don't do that. I worship Jesus for, because of what he did for me. We desire to honor God as befits his incredible love and mercy that he showed towards us. God is actually seeking worshipers like that, Jesus says, who worship in spirit and truth. People God wants worshipers who are overwhelmed with gratitude for a salvation that was dearly purchased for them at great cost. The spirit of man was actually designed to love and serve God. Because Jesus sought us and purchased us with his blood, we come back to that original purpose for us. And we exist for that purpose even today. I'm going to read to you something from the book of Hebrews real quick. If you want to turn there you can. It's from Hebrews chapter 10. It's a little bit lengthy. But the author of Hebrews moves us from Christ's sacrifice to proper worship in a really kind of wonderful way here. So this is Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. 
It says, but he, talking about Jesus, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is verse 16 now, this is my covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see how that flowed? Did you see that? That's worshiping in spirit right there. We think about what Christ did for us. We're incredibly grateful. It transforms our lives. We live for him with full assurance that we're welcome in his presence and that he, he smiles upon us, not because we're so fantastic, but because of what Christ accomplished for us. That's worshiping in spirit. And God delights in spiritual worship. Worship from the heart. He seeks it. Jesus says. And you could be you worshiping at home in their closet every single day. It could be that. It could be you in a small group somewhere worshiping. It could be here in the congregation like this worshiping. He wants to see true thanksgiving. He wants to see a heart broken over sin. He wants to see joy in what Christ has done for us and honor given to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, because of his greatness and what he sacrificed for us. That's true worshipers that can offer God that, that can do that. Worshiping in spirit and truth is all of that and more. And it's not easy because we're fallen creatures and we can get easily, anybody ever get distracted in worship? (laughs) Just once? (laughs) Yeah, it happens all the time, doesn't it? There are challenges because we're fallen creatures and we're still in this fallen world and these pathetic bodies are fallen nature. There's two main challenges that I see sort of in the church world as I kind of look at it. One I grew up in and that that would be the, the formal challenge to true worship. I'm talking about things that are challenging our ability to worship in spirit and truth. There's the formal challenge and I was raised in a very formal church. Very formal church. So everything was written out for us and um, everything we said, everything we sang, uh, the choir was behind us up in a choir loft. We looked at its magnificent, spectacular a stained glass epic portrayal of Christ seated on his throne with his crown and the ball and the mitre and all this stuff and angels surrounding him and the apostles at his feet and it was incredible. I got goosebumps as a child just sitting there although I had no idea what was going on. 
And I never really understood what it was about until I long left that place. Because formal worship, it's pretty easy to just read the words and do all, you know, the, the Anglican church, I was raised in Lutheran church, and the Anglican church is called the Book of Common Prayer. And it's full of all of this great stuff. But if you're an Anglican uh, and you do worship in your home as well as in church, you read those prescribed prayers for your family every day. Now, can you worship God like that? Yes, you can. You can honestly worship God like that if you read those words and mean them. If you read that service in church and sing it and mean them, you can truly worship God. But it's, I think it's a little harder to do when it's the same thing every week and it's been prepared for you and all of that. And you're, it's harder to engage that way. But certainly you can do it. Laura and I went to a wedding of a friend. Her dad was actually an Anglican minister and um, he performed the service and he ran through that service like it was nothing. I mean nothing. So I was just saying the word. Just saying the words literally. Martin Luther talked about that when he went to Rome. He, he went to some masses and he, he couldn't believe the way the priests were saying mass. He just trying to get through it as fast as they could. Had no thought to it whatsoever. No meaning to it. So I didn't do it like that in Germany. <laughs> I tried to give it some meaning. But it's easy to fall into that formal trap where you're not meaning what you're singing and what you're reciting and what you're saying. That's all I'm saying. It's harder. That's a challenge. Doesn't mean you can't do it though. The opposite challenge is what we might call, um, let's call it free expression. Um, letting yourself go. Working yourself up into an emotional state. In our day it's often, um, I'm just going to use this phrase, getting a buzz off of the music. <laughs> uh, it's feeling the experience, but not concentrating on what is true. Because we're supposed to worship in spirit and in truth, right? They go together. That's why Jesus says that. They're inseparable. It can't be cold-hearted truth or mere experience without reference to the truth. That's just as difficult. That's just as big a challenge. Your heart is supposed to be in it according to truth. So the worship experience has to be about the truth, not mere, not mere experience, nor mere ritual either, like I was raised in. So it's not mere ritual or mere experience. It's got to be worshiping with your heart towards God about the truth, about Christ and salvation and all of those things. So worshiping in truth, so the first thing it means is vigorously protecting the gospel. That's the most important truth, the gospel of Christ, that he died for your sins and that you put your faith in him and by faith in him alone, he grants you his righteousness and you're righteous before God in the eyes of God through his death and resurrection. That's the core of it all, right? If the gospel or the good news of the salvation that Jesus brought us is ignored or um, distorted in some way, then worship isn't happening. Doesn't matter how it looks or how it sounds or how it feels, that's not worship. The gospel has to be primary, it's the central truth. There are other truths, biblical truths that are very important as well, but that's the most important one. And there's a lot of falsehoods out there and you cannot worship the Lord in spirit and in falsehood. That's why you have to be dedicated to finding the truth and being a biblically based human being. The, the gospel is the central truth but there's a lot of truths. False prophets are all over the place and they're attributing to God things he never said. There's preachers that love to manipulate people saying whatever comes into their weird little heads and telling people all kinds of nonsense. That's not worship. I don't care how it feels. That's not worship. 
the entertainment culture that has infiltrated modern churches often hurts worship by identifying worship with heightened emotional reactions. Is it wrong to have a heightened emotional reaction? No. But if that is the central thing and that's not rooted in truth, that's a serious problem. You know, science, there's all kinds of science about the effects of music on the human being. And I love music. Uh, Music can move me tremendously. But that's why people go to concerts, whether it's a classical concert or something completely wild. You know, music touches them in a way and moves them. It makes them feel things. All sorts of feelings can come, really intense feelings. If it's a pretty hard kind of music, then dopamine kicks in also and just gives you all kinds of pleasures and you get all those kind of feelings. Science has, there's a lot of writing about that. It's actually kind of fun to read. But uh, when churches put forth a concert experience and you come to church and you get the buzz or the dopamine hit or whatever from the music, if there's not truth in that, it's not worship. And you could even be dancing and singing and all, it's not worship if it's not based on truth. I was at the gym one time many years ago and this very foul person was talking all this horrible stuff and then somebody else asked him about church and he said, oh, church was great on Sunday. (laughs) The, the, The worship was perfect, it was beautiful. I was so into it. Because, yeah, it was, he went to a concert and had a concert experience. You know how they used to light lighters and hold them up and everybody's all, it's like a mystical, it's like a religious experience sometimes in a concert and you get all these emotions and feelings, people weep, they go through all these things or they're super excited or they, you know, but that's not, in itself, that's not worship. Can you do all of that and, and worship? Yes, but that's, it, it can get in the way. It can deceive you to think you're worshiping when all you're doing is feeling the music. So just like the ritual thing is, I've done my job. I have worshiped. That's that side problem. The other problem is the emotional problem where you're, you're described. I I remember an ad on the Christian radio one time years ago and they said, it was up in the Antelope Valley, you will feel the Holy Spirit because of our worship band. That That was basically what they said in an ad for their church. You don't feel the Holy Spirit because of music. You're feeling music. The Holy, the Holy Spirit can work without music <laughs> and around music. Um, if you're feeling something because of music, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's music. Now, if you're, you can worship the Holy Spirit while you feel that music, you can do that. But what a weird thing to say to draw people in. And what a weird promise to make to people. So, the Holy Spirit doesn't write into your heart on well-played chords. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't do that. That doesn't mean you can't respond to truth and hear a great band at the same time because you can do that. But it's very easy to confuse emotion and spirit. So beware, that's all. Make sure you're responding to truth. Well, how can I tell? How can I tell if it's emotional, just emotionalism, or if I'm actually responding to the truth? Good question. Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> If you're worshiping God in spirit and truth, your primary feelings are going to be humility before God. Greater humility, conviction for sin, peace, joy in the Lord, in the Lord, and love for Christ. Those things, and there's more than that, but those are the kinds of things that will let you know that you've been worshiping in spirit and truth. If those are the things that are touching you if that's what's happening to you 
if that's what you're experiencing. Holiness will seem holiness will seem more delightful to you, not less delightful. The emotions that come in true worship are a response to truth. They're not just sensations. Emotion in itself is not worship. Emotion is good and it's fine if it's in response to truth. I can be very emotional in my response to truth but sometimes I'm kind of dead about it but still that doesn't mean I'm not worshiping because it's not about emotions. We have to be really careful here. You don't want to get into a habit where you confuse feelings with what worship actually is. Am I worshiping in spirit and truth? Well in spirit means from the heart. So yeah, so whether I'm feeling a ton of emotion or not, I can worship from the heart by giving God his due, by loving him, by expressing that to him without a ton of emotion surrounding it. Maybe a lot of emotion will surround it and sometimes it is like that, but other times it isn't like that. So when I say from the heart, what I'm saying is worshiping in spirit is worshiping with the affections. Now affections, A, that's with an A, right? Affections, what you, what you love. But love is more than a, an emotion. You can love some. If, who's here married? Look, yeah, we all know, right? <laughs> I love my wife. I mean, sometimes it's like emotional. I this, but I still love her when I'm distracted, ignoring her, <laughs> not giving her all my all. But I still love her. But and, but if you're in worshiping God, you're giving God. You're giving God His due. You're appreciating Him, even if you're not feeling it in a big way but if you're saying Lord I love you I serve you you are my God you are everything to me I'm ordering my life according to everything you say if you're communicating that to God with your heart without a lot of deep emotion then that's still worship that counts that does count I'm just trying to save you from feeling like you've got to have this intense emotional experience to be worshiping God emotional Emotional intensity depends on a lot of different things. Personality, the way you were brought up. If you were brought up in a cold home, it's pretty hard to express yourself that way. You don't tend to do that. Culture, some cult, well if you've been to Uganda, you know dancing around is a pretty major feature of their worship. Um, But they can do that and not be worshiping. But they can do that and be worshiping because that's their culture. So it's not not here or there whether you dance around or not. That's what I'm talking about though. But you can present to God yourself. So when I say I love God above all things, what I am saying is my heart is settled on him. He's my God. And when I worship, that is the truth of where my heart is. That's spiritual worship. That's worshiping in spirit. Even if you're not feeling all kinds of stuff at that particular moment. Usually you will feel something, but maybe not that particular day. But everything else in my life if, if I interpret my entire life in the light of him, he's first, that's settled, then at times my love for him will be emotional, at other times it will not be that emotional. And that's likely because I'm a fallen human being. And I, or I could be distracted by other things or something like that. Okay, so in spirit means the Lord your God is your highest good. And when I'm not particularly full of emotion, God is still my highest good. If I am full of emotion about him, that's, he's still my highest good. But if I don't have the emotion, it is real. My commitment to him is real. And that's what we mean by spirit. So for some people, it's a very quiet experience. For other people, they want to swing from the rafters. (laughs) 
But as long as worship is centered on God and giving God your heart, then it's good, it's genuine. So for the Christian, whether we're at home or whether we come to a place like this, where the saints gather, we are to gather together to worship God in our hearts, in spirit and in truth, trusting God's word. Okay, let me give you one last thought. God does not need your worship. You need to worship him. <laughs> Two different things there. Unlike the pagan gods, God does not need your worship. That's not why Jesus tells us to worship him in spirit and truth. God does want our worship, but he doesn't need our worship. He wants it because that is what is right, because he deserves it, and it's best for us in all things that we do to do what is right and what is appropriate. And what is appropriate? It's appropriate for tiny little finite creatures to magnify and glorify their creator. And much more so when they're wicked little tiny creatures and the creator has become one of them and died for them and purchased their eternal salvation. All the more he deserves it. That's why he wants it because it's right for us to do it. And it's good for us to do it. But he doesn't need it. He is our creator and our savior. He's the most high God. He is infinitely higher and deserves everything. He deserves everything from us more than anything else you can think of. And if you believe that, your worship should reflect that. Pretty simple. Let's pray. Father, it is our joy to call you Father. We ask you to keep yourself first in our hearts. Help us when we drift from weariness or by seeking sensations that are not of you. Let our love and gratitude be settled convictions that keep our hearts warm toward you. And let the truth be our guide in all things we ask in your son's name. Amen.